Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. If you would join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, and put a finger there. Sometimes there are questions and issues that come up over and over again during a week. And I start getting the idea then that maybe I'm supposed to talk about it. And not only did it come up in questions over and over, but it also came up in teachings that I was watching. Hmm. And last week, Daniel made a statement as we were in Romans chapter 11. What does that do to once saved, always saved? And that kicked off people thinking. And ultimately, the issues came down to who is written in the book of life. So we want to look, or at least I want to look, at all the scriptures on the book of life to see who is written because it's so very important. Are you going to heaven if you're not written in the book of life? The answer is no. That's why it's so important. And I was listening to two different teachers over the last 24 hours that talked about this topic. One is one who's intimately familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls and does a lot of his teaching from the Dead Sea Scrolls rather than the Bible. But the issue that they were asking him about was the rapture. Did he believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? And he said, absolutely. And then the one asking the question said, so you believe believers will be caught up to heaven? He said, no. He said, no, the church will be caught up to heaven. It's not individual people. It's the church as a whole. And the person asking the question essentially said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, if ever in your life someone has told you that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and you say, well, okay, I believe that, then you're going in the rapture, and you're going to live eternally, you're saved, nothing you can do to unsave yourself. And even the person asking the question was going, are you sure that's what the Bible says? And then today... Another very well-known theologian that teaches at the seminary level and is, is widely known and respected was asked about the book of life. And two things that he said caught me particularly hard. One was he was looking at a scripture that says, talking about those who get removed from the book of life. He said, well, that doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. It means that every person ever born is written in the book of life. And when you die without having come to faith in Jesus, your name gets removed. And then the very next verse was about those whose names were never written in the book of life. He said, well, that's easy because the book of life only contains the names of those that are saved. And I don't think he realized that in two minutes he gave direct opposite interpretations. And that made me think, since that question keeps coming up, who is written in the book of life, maybe we should take a few minutes and talk about it. So, we're going to look at every scripture that I have found in the, in the Bible about the book of life. Where do you think the first place is? What's that? Uh, it's actually Exodus. You're very close. Exodus, yeah. Exodus chapter 32. So it's introduced very early in the Bible. 
Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 32. Exodus 32, verse 32, and we'll go on to verse 33. Once I see that everybody has found it. This is Moses speaking to God, pleading on behalf of the children of Israel. He says, yet now, if you will forgive their sin, talking about the children of Israel who made what? A golden what? Half. Half, uh-huh. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. The Lord has said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So the speaker said, you can't learn anything from these verses except that there's a book. Really? How do you get blotted out of the book? Well, your name has to be in the book. And gets blotted out because of sin. Yeah, it's not an occasional oopsie. It's things like, well, you make a golden calf and worship it, and well, you've done bad. Go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, because those two verses in Exodus 32, verses 32 and 33, are not enough to draw a solid conclusion. So let's go to Psalm 69, verse 28. Are these psalms more than just songs? The answer is yes, they're prophecy. And this one's a prophecy by David. Psalm 69, verse 28. Speaking about whom? The unrighteous, those who turn their backs on God, those who will not hear when God speaks. Just look, at verse 27, look at verse 27, but first, back up to 24. Pour out your indignation upon them. Does that give you an idea who is talking about? Are these God's servants, his children, or are these his enemies? enemies. And let your wrathful anger take hold on them. Verse 27. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Iniquity is lawlessness. What did Messiah say in Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 about those who practice lawlessness? I never knew you. But if we go down to verse 28 it says let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So this tells us who is written in the book of the living. The righteous. And a verse that Daniel likes to cite in the book of Ezekiel says what? If a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, then his righteousness will not be remembered. So that's what this is saying. They were in the book of the righteous, but they turned from their righteousness. They turned away to worship idols, to walk in sin, to walk in lawlessness. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12. Even, even uh, Yeshua's parable of the type of seed. Yep, the parable of the sower. Yeah, fit right into what the, what the Old Testament is saying. Yeah. You've got, you do have faith springing up in people and then it dies. Yeah. Or they turn away. Are you telling me that the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches the same truths? Unfortunately. Hmm. Absolutely. Okay, you're absolutely right. 
Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, what time? Three o'clock in the afternoon. No, it's the tribulation period. Michael shall stand up. Michael, Michael in Hebrew, who is like God. He is an archangel. Very powerful archangel. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. This happens in Revelation 12, at the middle of the tribulation period. There should be a time of trouble. What do we call that time? Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah 30, verse 7, or the tribulation period. Such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, during that period we call the tribulation period, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book. So which portion of those written in the book of life will be delivered? All of them. So what does that tell you about the people written in the book? Is it every person who was ever born? Unfortunately not. So let's skip up to the New Testament. That verse, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And all of that was in that first verse? Yes. All that was in the first all verse. Right. Big verse. Isn't that a pretty cool verse? Yeah, so, so far we've looked at Exodus 32, verses 32 to 33, Psalm 69, verse 28, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And now we're going to the book of Luke. All the rest of the references are in the New Testament. There's 12 references total. Wayne, could you tell us real quickly what the uh, chapter and verse is in Ezekiel that Daniel likes to quote? Let me flip back there real quick. Ezekiel 18. Well, my Bible just falls open there too. Verse 24. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, that's lawlessness, that's not an occasional oopsie, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? The answer is implied no. Would you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 16? Yep. Can I finish this verse first? Yes. Then we'll come back to that. Back to All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. And then you said Malachi what? 3, 16 and 17. Ah, Malachi 3, 16 and 17. We know them well, don't we? It may be a different book. I'm just curious. Let's go to Malachi 3, verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. That's not the same book. That's the one that I call the book of deeds. So it's the remembrance of what you have done compared to what you should have done. But it's not the same book. Okay. So let's go on to Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, what color are these words? They're red. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that is, that you have the power to trample on serpents and scorpions, etc. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So what does it mean to be written in heaven? To be written in the book of life is to be... To be what? Saved. Saved. Looking forward to eternal life. Correct. Go on to Philippians. Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So when Paul refers to these people that are his fellow laborers in the gospel, and say their names are in the book of life, what's he telling us about them? They're saved. They're righteous. They're on that narrow path to eternal life. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. What word keeps coming up over and over again in Revelation 2 and 3? He who overcomes. Which is defined for us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And this is a promise to the overcomers, those that are saved by faith. It says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. What do the white garments represent? The righteousness of the saints, right? And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is where the theologian started to contradict himself saying, It looks like your name can be blotted out of the book of life. Like you can lose your salvation. He said, but you got to understand everybody's written in that book. Is that what we've seen so far in the verses up to this point? No. Well, he added to that. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. He said a lot of people think that Hebrews chapter 6 says that you can lose your salvation. But he said that's because they don't understand it. It conflicts with our doctrine of once saved, always saved. Therefore, I can't mean that. So here's what it says in verse 4, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. He said this isn't talking about believers. Is talking about unsaved people who were never in the book of life in the first place. Who became partakers of the Holy Spirit? Who became That's exactly who became partakers of the Holy Spirit. You don't get that as unsaved sinners not walking in the ways of God, do you? How can you fall away from something you've never been 
yeah, and his point was this exactly, that once you've had the gospel explained to you and you've looked upon Jesus' face and you reject him, that you can never be saved after that. You get one shot. And once you refuse him, you can never be saved. What does Revelation 7 say is going to happen in the, in the tribulation period? Who's going to get saved? Countless multitudes. Okay. I'm not meaning to pick on him. I just know people are listening because he's very well known. Let's go next to Revelation chapter 13, which is the next place this book is mentioned. Revelation 13, verse 8. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Who do you think the him is? The false messiah or antichrist or beast of Revelation 13. Whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If everyone's name is written in the book when they're born, then what would it possibly mean whose names have not been written in the book of life? They were never in it. Why were they never in it? Because they were never saved. And this is what was really giving him trouble is if only the saved are in the book and you can be blotted out of the book, then how does that not conflict with his doctrine? And he put doctrine over Bible. In other words, I think there have been some theories saying that everybody, when they're born, is put in that book and right. blotted out by their iniquity. Or, you know. Right. And that was his point on Revelation 3, verse 5. What you're saying is you, you've got to be saved to be in the book to begin with. Right. Is that am I understanding? Yes, you understand me correctly. And because notice you turn away. Right. In Revelation thirteen eight, all who dwell on the earth will worship them whose names have not been written in the book of life. They've been born. Yeah. If every name's written in the book of life when they're born, then they would have been written in the book of life. Right. And they would have said if his names were blotted out. Right. Instead of, yeah. But it says they were never there. So either they were never born. Yeah. Yes. I just, I mean, just something I was talking about. Uh huh. Good and loud. You know, like babies, for example. Babies. You know, we know, like, a, a baby, when they die, they're going to go to hell. You know, so it makes me wonder if the whole book of life does not really come into effect necessarily until somebody comes to an age. You mean, yeah. Yeah, I have to agree with that. There's not a verse I can point to in Scripture other than the book of Deuteronomy, how God didn't hold the young children accountable for the sins of those in Israel. I mean, that's just but I believe it. That's just conjecture, you know, just kind of based on what I'm, what I'm noticing here in the Scripture. You know, just, and the fact that Messiah said, if you don't come to me like a little child, you'll by no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. So, I mean, you know, like when someone reaches that age of accountability, God has said, all right, make a choice. Yeah. Yep, and also in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, it talks about before the child's old enough to know good from evil. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that just kind of echoes what Moses said, you know, except for you may life and death choose life. Right. And, and it's called the book of life. Right. I agree with you. Wayne, it's yes, always occurred to me that bit about, um, unless you're like a child, he then goes on to say, 
for their angels do always behold the face of my father yep. and and that implies that uh, when you're talking about um, the age of responsibility lots of debates about that all over the place right um but it does imply to me that if he's linked it to um unless you become like a child um that means that um you know there there comes a point about uh, by default if they were to die as children um Perhaps that's where people get mixed up with this idea of everybody being written in the book of life to start with. That children, as it were, I mean, the whole Jewish thing about Yom Kippur, I can't remember what the greeting goes, but may you be uh, uh, written in the book of life for this coming year, you know, the blessing. I can't quite remember how it that's the goes feast. in Hebrew. Yeah, that's the Feast of Trumpet that Blessing. Leshenat Tovata Katevu. Yeah, that that that's obviously, although it's not biblical as such, but that whole tradition is pointing to something further back, it would seem to me. Yeah, and it's not pointing to that may you have been born once upon a time. No. You're right, Emmett. So we have, let's just look again, Revelation 3, 5, which says, I will confess your name, but I will not blot his name from the book of life. I will not blot his name, the overcomers. Compare that to Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell in the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Sad to it, Revelation 17, verse 8. Revelation 17, verse 8. Oops, I see a number one out there. Let me check and see what it is. Two, two, two. Yeah, there are people who teach all kinds of things. Yep. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So another instance, it refers to those who will marvel after the false messiah are those whose names have never been written in the book of life. Then Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 Wait, 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 I was I was confused. I think you're going too fast. My poor brain is slowing and grasped it all. But I appreciate it. I think you're going to get it down. Thank you. Sorry, I will try to slow down. When I get excited, I know I speed up. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Revelation 20, verse 12. 
The next one will also be in chapter 20, so don't close the Bibles too quickly. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And then in verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So what if your name has been blotted out of the book? Where's your destination? The lake of fire. So you have to think. The scriptures have from Exodus 32 talked about the righteous are in the book, the lawless are not. Two more. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Talking about the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. One of two eternal destinations. What's the other one? The other one is the smoking section. Right, the lake of fire. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. But there shall by no means enter it, that is the new Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So those that are defiling an abomination, a lie, are they written in the book of life? They are not. Does the Bible make a clear distinction between those that are written and those that are not? It does, in fact. I told you there's just one more. Revelation chapter 22, verse 19. Yeah, we're getting to the end of the Bible, aren't we? We'll start in verse 18 for context, because this is pretty cool stuff. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. That's not a veiled threat, is it? No veil whatsoever. Yes, Matthew. There, is some religions there are some religions that you will not name that take things out. He's talking about this directly. There are a whole series of Bibles that took things out of Revelation 22 and put in other things. And there's other, let's just say, other Christian. Yeah. Well, he put air quotes around it. You just couldn't see it because he's sitting behind you. I mean, I don't want yeah. Yeah, I understand. Let me point out one thing. At least you can confirm this. All of these scriptures are taking absolutely no account of time. It's as if right. everyone, even though they died 4,000 years ago, they are aware of everything going on just as we are, just as those who are dead in Messiah are. So it's like it's almost like a picture painted all through scripture of 
life eternal. Yep. I keep hearing people say that come the rapture, people who got saved since Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection get to go in the rapture and resurrection. That people in the Old Testament, they got to wait till the thousand years are over. This book of life was started where? At the foundation of the world, all the way back in Genesis, even though it's not discussed until the book of Exodus, when Moses writes about it, does he say the book of what? No, he doesn't. He says that makes sense. The book of life. Salvation's always been by faith. It's never been by any other way. And Messiah has been the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and following, where God discusses the results of eating from the wrong tree, God promised the seed of the woman, that's our Messiah Yeshua. He made the promise of the coming Messiah to Adam and Eve. Did they believe God? If they did, that's called faith. Saved by faith. Now granted, it was saved by faith in God's promise that Messiah would come. Did Messiah come? Yes, he did. We look back on it. They look forward to it. What did Messiah say in John 14, 6? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Okay. That's all I wanted to say about the book of life. So thank you for letting me digress a little bit. Let us now return to where your finger is still waiting. In Jeremiah, before you get started, or before I go, go ahead, Penny. You've broken up so much, Penny. I I didn't hear it. I'm sorry. Is the great cloud of witnesses? Is that are they different? Are written around? Correct. The great cloud of witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 12, you say. So let's go back to Hebrews 12 and look at the great cloud of witnesses. Yep, talking about all the people from Hebrews 11. Let's see. Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... That's talking about the honor roll of the faithful that we find in Hebrews chapter 11 that begins with, um, the first one mentioned here is Abel in verse 4 of chapter 11, then Enoch, Noah, Abraham, etc. All these have testified to us that salvation is by faith. And that when we put our faith in God and do not let it waver, he will bless like no one else. So Hebrews 12.1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let, a lay, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Does that mean continue in sin? No, it means put it aside. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If we're talking about heroes of the faith and salvation by faith, why does he say lay aside the sin? Because they had to lay aside the sin as well because that's how God judges is your faith real or not. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. When God commended Abraham in 
When God committed Abraham in Genesis 26, it was he did what? He kept my Torah. He didn't say, good job um, keeping all these sins. Right. He said, good job keeping uh, what I commanded you to do. Right. So let's go back to Exodus 26 and read it. Genesis 26, sorry. I shouldn't have glanced down at my notes. Genesis 26. It says in Genesis 15 that Abraham saved by faith. And yet here in Genesis chapter 26, God's talking to Isaac. And says, I'm going to keep all those promises that I made to your father. Verse 4, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. That's the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. I'll give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, that's Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because, what's the word because mean? Here's why. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments. That's literally the Torah that he's talking about. My charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The Hebrew word there is Torah. So why does God say, Abraham kept my commandments? Because that was the proof to God of his faith. Where, in which chapter does God say, now I know that you fear God? Genesis 22. When Abraham did not shirk, when God told him to take his son, his only begotten, beloved son, up there and offer him as a sacrifice in Mount Moriah. Not to sacrifice him, to offer him. To be willing, if that's what God wanted. But of course it's not. Yes, David. That great cloud of witnesses. That Hebrews 12 is talking about. Right. So are you really telling me the New Testament says the Old Testament is there for us to learn from? Well, where did that cloud of witnesses come from? They're all mentioned in the Old Testament. Yeah. But the answer is, well, of course. Let's just turn and look at it. Chapter 15, right? The left-hand side of the left-hand page, Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before, that is in the Old Testament, were written for our learning, our, us, in the New Testament, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. What did we learn from the Old Testament? That salvation is by faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. What does the New Testament say? Salvation is by faith. In Hebrews 3 it says the gospel was preached to them in the wilderness but it didn't do them any good because they didn't mix it with faith. faith. Yep, same message. So let's go back to unless somebody objects to Jeremiah. Hopefully I got the questions answered. Jeremiah chapter 12. We started verse 1 last week. I remember because we had to correct some words, didn't we? Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. It's not when, it's for or because. The Hebrew word is key. 
yet it's actually but, but but yet they mean about the same thing yet let me talk with you about your judgments why does the way of the wicked prosper and why are those happy who deal so treacherously this question has been asked down through the ages it became a non-biblical Jewish teaching that if you're wealthy, it's because you're blessed by God, because you're so righteous. You know, I think I've even heard that this week from Christian pulpits. But it never was true. So Jeremiah saying, Lord, these are sinners. How come they're doing so well? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, 9 that we looked at last week, but I've forgotten what it says, so I need to refresh myself. You think I could remember something like that for just a week, but well, no. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. That word perfect is tamim. It means without spot or blemish. Noah walked with God. That's the word I want you to look at. There are different kinds of verbs in Hebrew. Pa'al is simple action. Pa'al is strong emotion. This one's hit pa'al, which means he made a conscious choice to walk with God. While everyone else was walking away from God, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He chose to walk with God and tried to persuade others. Does that make you think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 19? Those who keep the commandments and teach others to do so shall be called what? Great in the kingdom. Or in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it said they'll shine like the stars forever and ever. But was Noah a rich man? Did he have palatial estates? Many, well, you know the answer to that is no. He huge yeah, he did have a huge boat, but he had to build it himself, and it took him 120 years. <laughs> then go to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. He wasn't a spring chicken when he built it. Anyway. He was not a spring chicken when he built it in, anyway. How old was he when the rains came? Was it 600? Yeah. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Coming into the ark is a picture of being taken up to heaven. And why was he righteous in the eyes of God? Because he chose to walk with God. It was his faith that God looked down upon Genesis 18. Yeah, but isn't it kind of sad that only one man out of the is it kind of sad that one man out of the whole world is considered righteous in God's eyes? Yeah. And he's mentioned specifically because of the faith that he had. The same is written of Enoch, that he chose to walk with God. Yeah. And when Messiah says that it's going to be like the days of Noah. That's when he says in Matthew chapter 7, there are very few who find the narrow way that leads to life. The scripture says, when I come, will I even find faith in the world? 
So there are ministers out there you can find on the internet that say when the trumpet blows, billions are going to be caught up. I don't think that's how God defines very few. But let's go to Genesis 18. Your points are well made. Verse 23. Verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous, that's referring to Lot, with the wicked, that's everybody else. So the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. Let's get to the bottom line. What did God do in the days of Noah and the days of Lot? He removed the righteous before the destruction came upon the unrighteous. Now let's pick up with something new. Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. That's right. God cannot, in accordance with his own nature, pour out his wrath and indignation on the tribulation period until the righteous are removed. That's what the angels told Lot, right? Until you come out, we cannot destroy the city because God will not pour out his wrath upon his righteous children. And even within the tribulation period, when God is pouring out the full. And even within the tribulation period, when God's pouring out his full wrath, You don't see the wrath falling on those who get saved during the tribulation like in Egypt when God sent his great judgments upon the Egyptians. Did they fall upon the children of Israel? They did not. So those verses were all looking at the righteous nature of God's judgment. Did God deliver the wicked? No, but God delivered the righteous. That goes right along with a, sh a yeah, a share, a yeah from Exodus chapter 3. I will be whom I will be. Now Exodus 9.27. We're in the midst of the ten plagues coming upon the Egyptians. It says, and Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. So even Pharaoh had to admit that God's judgments are righteous. They were in the past, they will be in the future. That's just the nature of God. Go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verses 7 to 8. 
Psalm 37, verses 7 to 8. Let me check this chat comment out there. It says, if Noah was the only one who was righteous in the world, that is, he and his family, then how come his wife, sons, and daughter-in-laws were all so spared? We know salvation is not inherited. I don't know where he got daughter-in-laws. Oh, she's talking about Noah, not Lot. Yeah. Okay. The Noah's wife, his sons, and their wives. They were the only ones who listened as he preached righteousness. Okay. Psalm 37, verses 7 to 8. Rest in the Lord. I was thinking Lot, but she said Noah. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So he says, don't worry about the fact that some of the unrighteous are prospering temporarily. Because what is their income judgment day? They will either repent and get saved or else they're in deep trouble when they come to judgment day. So the psalmist's advice is don't worry your pretty little heads over how other people are being blessed or appear in your eyes to be blessed. Uh, Verse 1 of Psalm 37 do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. So don't look at how they are wealthy in this world. Look at what their judgment is going to be if they don't repent come judgment day. Verse 9 goes right along with it. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. I mean, you know, I wonder if the people in that day really had an understanding of what it means to inherit the earth. Because it's like that essentially means you are inheriting New Jerusalem. You are part of that heavenly kingdom where the streets are paved with gold. Yep. That's right. So what do we learn from this? What? Don't worry about whether you're wealthy or not. Some of you are a lot more wealthy than I, some less. What difference does that make? The answer is none. This life, this world, is not what's important. It's the life that is to come. If God gave me a million dollars, would I do righteous things with it? Maybe not. So maybe I don't need a million dollars. God knows. The... The parables he told were some people get ten talents, some five, some one. It's not how much you get, it's what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Let's go to Psalm 73. Tevia? Yeah. If I were a rich man. Yep. Psalm 73, 1 to 24. That was a tragic song. It was as he was singing that song on stage, not in the movie, that he walked off the edge of the barn. 
and never got to perform again. Psalm 73, the whole psalm, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it's all relevant to this topic. It says in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Does this go right along with Paul's statement in Romans that they're not all Israel who say they're Israel? Yeah. To such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph said, when I saw the wicked prospering, I almost walked away from my righteous path because I was thinking, well, if they get all this and they're wicked, maybe I should just be wicked too, right? He says, boy, I almost blew it right there. Verse 4, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. Meaning they're not going to starve to death. They're going to be well fed and strong to the end. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Meaning what? Their wealth and prosperity leads them to wickedness. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. What's loftily mean? Boastfully. Yeah, boastfully with arrogance and pride. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. In other words, are they praising God? No. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the most high? They're thinking, hey, God's stupid. He's rewarding those wicked people. He should know better than that. Ooh, let's not talk to God like that, huh? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. This is still a soft saying, boy, I almost blew it. And washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been plagued. And chastened every morning. Plagued, God chastens him. Does God chasten his children? Yes. Does he chasten those that are not his children? He doesn't promise that, no. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Meaning what? When I came to my senses and realized that come judgment day, what good is all that wealth and opulence going to do them? Not a thing. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. The psalmist said by allowing them to be wealthy and powerful and not experience your judgment, you let them just slide right on down into the lake of fire. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. 
I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and receive me afterward to glory. So which is better, to have wealth and opulence in this life or to live with God eternally in that new Jerusalem? Where the streets are paved with what? With gold. That's enough. That gets the point across. So let's go back to Jeremiah. Chapter 12. So the answer to the question, why does the way of the wicked prosper, is don't worry about it. Come judgment day, God will sort out the righteous from the wicked. Messiah told John, you know, that there will be, this will happen with John. Peter said, well, what about him? Yeah, yeah. And Messiah said, don't worry about him, follow me. Right. Don't worry about him, follow me. Because you're right, Peter was all concerned. Hey, hey, if I'm going to end up getting crucified too, what's going to happen to John? Messiah said, yeah, don't worry about that. Verse 2. You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. Talking about Israel particularly Judah. We read in Isaiah chapter 5 how Israel is his vineyard and Judah was his choice plant. So God planted them in a good land. He cleared the place of stones. He said he gave it water and hedge of protection and everything and expected good fruit. It says they grow. Yes, they bear fruit. Bear is the wrong tense. The verb is perfect tense. They made fruit. That is once upon a time. God planted them in a good land. He cared for them. He did everything necessary. And initially the fruit was good. But then what happened? Then they got corrupt. When they got wealthy and, and comfortable and powerful, then they got corrupt. It says, uh-oh. You are near in their mouth. What's that mean? They honor me with their lips, but far from their mind or heart. Yep, that's Mark chapter 7. Let's go up to Mark chapter 7. Same in the Old Testament as the New. He's quoting Isaiah when he says that too. And he's quoting Isaiah when he says that in Mark 7. Mark 7, verses 6 and 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Let me give you a chance to find it. As it is written. If you take all the quotes from the Old Testament out of the New Testament, you're left with a pamphlet. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is that the same as in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23? They call me Lord, Lord, but they don't do what I say. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Are they on the narrow path to heaven? When they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, no, they're on that broad road that leads to destruction. Let's go to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Part of it is that in vain they worship me. That's kind of 
when it says in vain they worship me, that pops off the page to you. It's like, it's like the Lord is saying, don't waste your breath. If you're not going to obey me according to the way I want you to obey me, don't even waste your breath. Yeah. So if it's in vain to have your doctrine based upon the commandments of men, what should your doctrine be based upon according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? Scripture. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? When they call me Lord, Lord, he says, they're honoring me with their lips. When they don't do the things which I say, it means their heart is not with me. He said, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. And if you don't keep my commandments, it's because you do not love me. That's how these things all fit together. But let's go back to Malachi 1.6. Yeah, also goes along with the church of Laodicea, you say. Because they're being lukewarm. He said, rather you are hot or cold, right? But since you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And unless you're Jonah and he's a fish, yeah, you don't want that. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, what's another word for master? Lord. Lord and master are interchangeable. Where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. If you call me master, master, or Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say, then where's the reverence? It's missing. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 12. God is not misled. You will worship him or you will not. Now verse 3 answers the question that's been raised here. And it tells us that the wicked are going to get their judgment if they do not repent. Verse 3 says, but, it's actually just and. You, O Lord, know me. No is not the right tense. It's new. You knew me. Scripture says God knew me from what? From the time I was conceived. So Jeremiah is saying, you've known me my whole existence from the time I was conceived. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, not my heart, the wicked. And prepare them for the day of slaughter. What's the day of slaughter? Just put in there the great white throne judgment. So why do the rich prosper? Well, even the wicked tend to do some good. And God may recompense them for that good in this life because come the lake of fire, there's no good there. There is no cool side to the lake of fire. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. God wants everyone to repent. 
So why hasn't God slammed the hammer down on these wicked people? Because they might yet repent. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. After telling us that the heavens and earth are reserved for fire, verse 8 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not that all will come to repentance. It's God's desire that they do. But when does God take away our choice and make us get saved? The answer is never. That's why the next word is but. God wants everyone to be saved, but not everyone will. Deuteronomy 30, I said before you today, life and death. Yes, Edmund. Uh, this business about, um, you know, why doesn't God um, uh, judge the wicked at this point rather than later, it says that um, when, uh, I think it's about the Amorites, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Right, Genesis chapter 15. So that always suggests to me that um, there's always this sort of waiting until the point, whether it's, you know, they may have an opportunity to repent and change, yeah. or whatever, the whole, the whole thing can't come until the fullness of the thing is expressed. Yeah. Aren't you glad... That the first time you committed a really big sin, God didn't just drop a big rock on you and be done with you. That he gave us a chance to repent. I am. Let's just go to Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 27. Yes, Richard. A thought is that, you know, you have the, shall we say, the wicked or the evil or, you know, uh, unrepentant, very wealthy men. A lot of people don't take into consideration that those very wealthy men are actually hiring uh, or paying uh, possibly, uh, most likely, righteous people under him. And those people need a job as well. Yep, so. could be. Yep. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 goes right along with Second Peter. It says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So until the point of death, we all have the opportunity to repent and to turn back to God. Hopefully none of you would take the opportunity to turn away from God, okay? But until we die, we still have an opportunity to repent, to come back to God and embrace him with our whole heart. Back to Jeremiah. Chapter 12, verse 4. I don't like this verse, but we have to read it because it's there. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. They call 
God a liar. These are the people that are left in Jerusalem after the first two waves of the Babylonian captivity. God told them both times to go, and both times they said, no, we will not. We will stay here. God will not do what he said. God will not judge us. We're going to be just fine. And verse 4 says, the land is being judged and the population is going to get extinguished. Because instead of all the opportunities God's given them to repent, they choose to reject them all. They refuse to hear the prophet calling for repentance. And instead they listen to the false prophets who say, God wouldn't dare touch us because he loves us too much. Jesus gets us. Yeah, they call God a liar. Let's not stand too close come judgment day. But back to Jeremiah chapter 12, we're up to verse 5, which only has three pages of notes, so hold on to your hats. Verse 5 says, If you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? That verse is clear as mud, right? Well, let's see if we can bring some clarity. God's talking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is struggling to understand how the people can just refuse to hear the word of God. How they can refuse to repent. Ugh. Sorry, I just had a news article flash through my mind. I don't even want to talk about it. But if you run with the footmen and they have wearied you, he's talking about his own family. Then how can you contend with horses? If you can't even understand your own family, because remember, they're rejecting Jeremiah. They're calling for Jeremiah to be put to death, his own family and his friends. Friends like this, who needs enemies? But if you can't understand the rationale of people, how can you possibly understand the rationale of God? Because doesn't the scripture say God's ways are higher than our ways? So God's using two metaphors. That was the first one. And if in the land of peace, he's talking about with his family who tried to poison him to death, then how will you do in a floodplain of the Jordan? How do you think you're going to do when you take on the rest of Judah? If your family won't listen, then what makes you think the rest of them are going to? They're just not. So Jeremiah should have been safe with his own kinsmen in Anatoth, but they tried to poison him. So what happens when he goes up to Jerusalem? Does he expect there they will hear his message? No, they're listening to the false prophets. Verse 6 says, For even your brothers, the house of your father, this is explaining the metaphors, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Your brothers, the house of your father, your relatives, 
The people are supposed to love you. They want you dead. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. What are smooth words? Deceiving words. They speak good things and blessings. And when you turn your back, they stick a knife in you. Yeah, yeah, that's what he's talking about. In Isaiah 30, they want the false prophets to prophesy smooth words. Does that make you think of 2 Timothy 4? Time of the end, they want their ears tickled. That's what they want from the prophets. Everything is fine. Yes, ma'am, Melanie. It's when I get called uh, a heretic. <clears throat> when you get called a heretic by your own family and friends and loved ones? Yeah, yeah. The rest of us don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Who's speaking there? It's the Lord, yep. It's not Jeremiah, it's the Lord. The Lord's talking about his heritage is Israel. And remember, the northern kingdom was already gone into captivity 120 years ago. And the remnant, they're going into captivity now. The way this reads, I mean, it sounds like what's happening right now. Sounds like what's happening right now. That is correct. The scripture says several things. One is that If Israel comes and celebrates the three pilgrim festivals, that no man will covet her land. How long have they had Jerusalem in the Temple Mount? 56 years. Have they built the temple? Have they started to worship God there? They have not. And the other we read from Haggai last week was God says, how long are you going to live in these beautiful houses while the temple lies in ruins? It says, until you laid the cornerstone, you were under judgment and curses. And have you noticed that since you laid the cornerstone, life's gotten so much better? Do you think anybody's paying attention in Israel? No. But I think they will shortly. What's interesting is that Netanyahu is a big student of Bible prophecy. Hmm. Okay. Verse 7 corresponds to Deuteronomy 28, verses 36 to 45. My house is talking about the house of Israel. And the Davidic throne. My people have gone into captivity. It's like God is telling, too, telling Jeremiah, you know, you're being rejected by your family in that first. So imagine me being rejected by my children. Yep, that's exactly right. God understands Jeremiah's pain because God's own children have turned their backs on him. Yep. Deuteronomy 28, 36, but we're going to go through 45. 
36 through 45. God warned Israel 700 years before, give or take. Because there were 400 years plus of the judges before we came to the kings. And in Deuteronomy 28.36 it says, The Lord will bring you and the kingdom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods wood and stone. Why? Because that's what they were doing in God's land. So he said, not in my land. If the sins of the Amorites were fallen, I kicked them out and you're acting like them, you're going to go too. Verse 37, you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. Let me see, i got a comment out there or something. Um, if you're talking about Jeremiah... Her question is, did the family think that he was just running his mouth? The answer is no. He was just telling them something they didn't want to hear. If you have a choice between hearing a prophet that says repent or die, and one that says, hey, life is good, God's not going to judge us, who do you want to hear? The flesh wants to hear everything's good. What should the spirit want to hear? Yep. Right, so back to Deuteronomy 28, verse 37. You shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. Which book of the Bible talks about the four types of locusts that came through, representing the four captivities? Joel chapter 1. You shall build vineyard, plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you. You shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because. What's that word because mean? Here's why. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. Why didn't they? Hebrews chapter 3 says because they did not have faith. No one's saved by keeping commandments. But if you're saved by faith, what will you do? You will keep the commandments. To be saved... No, because you are. It changes your life. It changes your life. Back to Jeremiah chapter 12. Are we all the way up to verse 8? Here's another heartbreaker. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. 
therefore I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest means they are opposed to me. They're an enemy to me. They turned away. They embraced the pagan idols. They don't want me. They want me destroyed. And the me is God. So God says, what choice do I have but to treat them like a lion? That was going on in spades in Israel recently. Recently, right. Revelation 16. Revelation 16 has the same attitude toward God that we're reading about in Jeremiah. Verses 8 to 11. Revelation 16, verses 8 to 11. Wait, there's a number one out there. Okay. I got the right heat. Verse 8, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. What is Revelation 16 trying to tell us? They know where the judgments are coming from. But their hearts are set. Too many people think that faith means, I believe there is a God. Do you notice these people know for sure there's a God? Because that's where the plagues are coming from. And yet, do they repent and fall on their knees and get saved? Quite the opposite. They blaspheme God to his face. Uh. Verse 9. Back to Jeremiah 12, verse 9. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. This is a call to war against Judah. God says, my people want me to die. But I have to call the nations now to battle because that's what I said back in Deuteronomy 28. And does God lie? God does not lie. Give me a verse. So both of those are good ones. Yep, that was another good one. In other words, there's lots of verses we could cite. So verses 10 to 13, let's read them and then comment. Before I do, the end of verse 8, therefore I have hated it. That's we, God talking. That's God talking. This really shows the nature of God. Like he's, he's saying, you come against me, therefore I have shown you not giving you the blessings and the honor that I want to give you. Yep. So you mean in Isaiah 66, when God calls them his enemies, he means his enemies, not his dearly beloved friends? And there again, this goes right along with 
I will be whom I will be. That's right. If you're my loving child, I'm a loving father. But what if you're an enemy? Then he's a righteous judge. And the verse 9 says, you're, you're toast. Yep. Now to verse 10. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. These rulers are talking about the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel. Did they lead the people to God in most of the time? No, they led people away from God most of the time. So they have destroyed my vineyard. That's Israel. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. No one takes what to heart? The words of repentance, the call to come back to God. The plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. Uh Uh-oh. So much for the words of the false prophets that God wouldn't bring judgment on us, right? They have sown wheat but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. I keep telling you God's referring to Israel as his vineyard and Judah his choice vine. But in Isaiah 5 that's exactly what it says. It also tells us what happens to that vineyard if it becomes unfruitful. Isaiah 5.1 says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine." He built a tower in its midst that's to watch over and protect it. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes, meaning bad, bad grapes. What do the grapes represent? Their actions, right? Their obedience versus non-obedience. And now when it happens to Jerusalem, men and Jew, to judge, please, between me and my vineyard, meaning who led who down? What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God says, if it's my fault, if I let you down somehow, let me know. What did I promise that I didn't do? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? So God says, if I did everything I promised to do, and I did, then why the bad grapes? And now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Do you hear a woodshed experience coming? Oh yeah. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. Meaning I will not protect it. I will take my hand away when the enemies come. Does it sound like today? And break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression. 
for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. A wailing from those that are being oppressed and treated without justice, without righteousness. Ezekiel 34. Cattle mm. are planting squash and uh, gourds in the same place, and they crossbreed, and what you get can't be used. Yep, or good seed and tares, right? Exodus 34. Ezekiel 34, thank you. I don't know what I said, but whatever she said was right. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 10. Sad as this passage is, I love it. Because when Messiah told the multitudes to lie down and he would feed them, it harkens right back to Ezekiel 34. We're going to do verses 1 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. That's the prophets, the priests, and the kings, the leaders, who are supposed to be leading the people to God like good shepherds. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? At the end of the book of John, what did Messiah say to Peter three times? Feed my sheep, not eat my sheep, right? Feed my sheep. Not fleece my sheep either. You eat the fat, meaning the best of them, and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. In other words, they kill the prophets that are God's prophets because they don't want to hear the repentance. So they do not let the flock learn how to follow God. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because, see that word because, here's why Israel went astray. Because there was no shepherd. What happens to sheep who don't have a shepherd? They go whichever way. What do they do when they have a shepherd? They follow the shepherd. They follow the shepherd in the way. So because there was no shepherd, they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Individual sheep have no protection against the wolves, the lions, the bears, oh my. My sheep wander through all the mountains that is being scattered across the world. And on every high hill, talking about the pagan altars. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Judgments come in. As I live, says the Lord God, this is an oath that will never be broken. Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd. Nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my flock at their hand. 
I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. What's this talking about? What happened to the throne of David at the time of the Babylonian captivity? Zedekiah was killed after what? After all his sons were killed before his eyes, right? And then they took out his eyes. Looked like the throne of David was no more. Not until Messiah comes to restore it. And then there's the curse of Kaniah too. Why? Didn't all those kings lead Israel in the most righteous and godly of ways? No. When one would restore it like Josiah, what would his next generation do? Tear it all back down. Put all the pagan idols back up. Man, that's hard. That's hard. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 12. In Jeremiah 12, 12. The plunders have, plunders have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness. Yes. That's where they worship the pagan idols. And that's where the invaders come, right? So God is saying those idols that you put your faith in are going to let you down. Right. When the invaders come, what are those idols going to do to protect Israel? They're just going to be kindling for the fire. We have two minutes left, so let's finish this chapter. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, Against all my evil neighbors, who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land, and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Uh-oh. This is judgment on the nations. The nations that have taken Israel captive. The nations that have invaded. The nations that have harassed. The nations that have shot rockets into Israel. They're going to get plucked out of their land. What people tend to forget is when Babylon took Israel captive, they took the rest of the world captive. Every nation was taken into captivity. That's why it became such a big empire. Every nation was punished except for Babylon, but then Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia, and Medo-Persia ruled every nation. And then Medo-Persia was overthrown by Greece. So Medo-Persia got its comeuppance. And Greece was overthrown by, you get the idea. That's what verse 14 is about. Is yes, God judged Israel. But people think, but God didn't judge the rest of the world. He let them be. That's not the case. The entire world came into judgment. The scripture tells us specifically. Because they did not keep the commandments of God either. Verse 15, then it shall be. After I have plucked them out. Plucked who out? Judah and Israel. Yeah. That I will return 
and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. Is the Lord really going to return? Is he really going to bring Israel back to the land? Absolutely. What's that millennium? You're ready. Yeah, me too. Me too. Verse 16, and it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. This means that when Israel comes back to the Lord, if the other nations come back to the Lord too, what will God do? Will he bring them into his kingdom? He most certainly will. This is talking about the messianic kingdom. In the messianic kingdom, is there only Israel or are there other nations of the world? The other nations, the ones that repented and came back to God. In the tribulation period, what judgments will God pour out on the Gentile nations? The Psalm 83 war, the Ezekiel 38 war, the battle of Armageddon, and all the wrath and judgments that are poured out upon the world. According to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, at the battle of Gog and Magog, when God intervenes, how many nations will come to know him? It says many will come to know him, many nations. You know what, this is a good place to stop. And let's pick up next week, Lord willing, unless I get distracted again, in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 15, and talk about this regathering. I want to look at that more.